Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Will Dunn, business editor in London. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor US in Washington, DC. I'm Ida Vok, your correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 15th of December. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. The World Cup shouldn't be here. It shouldn't be here. It's been mentioned there with the people there about the corruption regarding FIFA. We've got a country the way they treat migrant workers, gay people. The World Cup is almost finished, but new revelations are out about alleged corruption involving the host country. FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried has been arrested and charged in the Bahamas. It's so hard to compare these things, but I, I think it's fair to say that by any anyone's lights, this is one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. What does that mean for the future of crypto? We also take a question from a chatbot on AI and racism. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Listeners, your ears did not deceive you at the start there. We are very excited because Will Dunn is on the pod. Thank you, Will, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Will is here because, as you may have sensed from those introductory remarks, we are talking about sports and tech this week, which we don't always do on this podcast. But let's let's get started. Subject number one. Belgian prosecutors are investigating allegations that Qatar has tried to bribe and gift people to gain influence in European Parliament. Four people have been charged so far. This comes as the Gulf country wraps up its hosting of the World Cup, which some have likened to sport washing. Sport washing, if you're not familiar, is basically the practice of using sports to have people overlook your grievous human rights record. Now, I know that we've already done an episode about sort of the, the complications of this particular country with its particular human rights record hosting the World Cup. Thousands of migrants died in the 10 years since it was announced that Qatar would host the World Cup and the actual World Cup. And I think for many soccer or football fans, it's been complicated as the World Cup has gone on because 
I don't, you know, Will, I don't know if you two have been watching, but it's been in some ways a really enjoyable series of games. Sorry about England to English uh, football fans. Vito just shook his head at me. But I, I think this reminds us that we can't kind of, you know, say, oh, well, since we all had such a good time watching the games, we can just like pretend that it was fine that this country hosted them. I, I guess, Will, have you been watching the World Cup and what, how, how have you navigated this intellectually? I have not been watching the World Cup <laughs> because um, I don't really watch football, uh, which is very much... Right, we have uh, not met Will properly before he was invited onto this part of the But in the last World Cup in, uh, in Russia, it was, there was this weird disconnect between the foreign policy positions between the UK and Russia, but then still fine for members of the royal family to go and, you know, watch all being played by our national team. Yeah, so Macron went in person last time and and I was watching some interview with him where he was like, ah, yeah, 2018, that was a whole lifetime ago. Who could have imagined that this would happen? And it's on the one hand, yeah, I I think in in 2018, if you had asked me, would Russia launch an all-out war into Ukraine? I would say no, but they had already annexed Crimea and were supporting separatists in the East in 2018. And also, you know, we People have spoken about Qatar's stance on LGBTQ rights. Like Russia had already passed legislation that makes it very difficult to be gay in Russia, to be a gay child in Russia. Uh, yeah. Russia also invaded Crimea off the back of the public support that P- Putin got from, uh, you know, having Russia having hosted the Winter Olympics. So, mm-hmm. you know, there was a really clear pattern of um, big sporting events, you know, sport washing within you know that one country being used to 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 drum up public support that could then be used to yeah have have more support for military actions so um uh, it was pretty astonishing to me that that was deemed okay and then four years later we said let's do it again you have rishi sunak tweeting basically like it it was something like congratulations to cutter on such a wonderful games and it's like oh right this works like the reason that they wanted to host these games is that it is an effective strategy. Just to give listeners a little more context on the current revelations, basically the charge is that Qatar sought to shape EU policy by bribing parliament officials. Four have been charged with money laundering, corruption, participating in a criminal organization. As I said, four people have been arrested. There have been computers seized and the equivalent of 515,000 pounds were seized, were searches conducted across Brussels. I mean, it's really... So this would have been a scandal anyway, but it's it's particularly, I don't know, revealing in that it comes one week before the World Cup final hosted by this country. And I think there's another parallel that you can point out between Russia and the UK and, and Qatar and the UK, which is that much as we have relied on Russia as a, as a big source of fossil fuels in the past, uh, we currently rely on Qatar for a lot of our LPG gas. So that sports washing is obviously particularly useful to regimes that are you know financially dependent on trading fossil fuels with us. I think it's a great parallel, it's a great point, but that 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 is who wants to engage in this practice, right? It's countries that have poor human rights records. You know, and and again, not to say that the World Cup is just propaganda. I've been watching it, I've really been enjoying it, but it's PR. Okay. On that note, we are going to go with these two non football watchers from one case of alleged corruption to another. The United States charged Sam Bankman-Fried. Sam Bankman-Fried, if you don't know, was the FTX founder. He was arrested in the Bahamas at the request of the U.S. government. And the criminal charges against him include wire fraud and conspiring to defraud the United States. 
So this is a completely wild story. And this person, for those of you who are not familiar, not too long ago, Sam Bankman-Fried was hailed as like the wunderkind of crypto. He was positioning himself to be a major political donor, to be a philanthropist. Will, could you just talk a little bit about how this house of cards came crashing down for uh, for Mr. Bankman-Fried? Yeah, sure. So like you said, Emily, the, um, you know, he was the the biggest rising star of the the crypto sector. He ran this exchange called FTX, which was the the second biggest crypto exchange in the world, where about 1.2 million people used FTX to to buy uh, and trade cryptocurrency. Um, They made a lot of money. They used it to buy naming rights to a big sports stadium, Super Bowl ads. You know, they had conferences that were attended by... You know, Bankman-Fried was on stage with Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. The very sort of peak of his wealth, he was valued at a personal wealth of about $20 billion at the age of 30. And yeah, so he he appeared to be doing very well for himself. Just to pop in, and because there is a sports watching connection. Yeah, if you went to Miami, the stadium there is was in for DX. And also, for anyone who watched our American football um, and the Super Bowl last winter, you you will remember that it felt like every ad, like every ad felt like it was about crypto and it was celebrities hawking, like celebrities were had signed on to hawk these products and to give their faces and their likenesses to um, promoting this product, including for Bank and Freed and FTX. So go on. It's worth pointing that out, like the, the extent to which big names were involved and why, because in general, as an investment product, cryptocurrency is, you know, it's it's socially agreed value, right? So it's it's a group of people getting together and saying, right, this is worth this much. It's not an investment product like a property asset that might have a particular use value or, you know, a company that want to have expected revenue growth and things like that. It's mostly, are other people going to buy it? And that is why celebrities and, and politicians who endorsed it are so sort of involved in that value creation because it was their names that that lent these products the influence that they needed to grow. Yeah, and uh, and FTX, like I said, was was one of the biggest trading platforms for um, for buying and selling them. And then last month, the the balance sheet for another company that was founded by Sam Bankman-Fried was published by a website called CoinDesk. And it showed that the $14.6 billion pile of assets that were supposedly owned by Alameda, a lot of it was actually assets that had sort of been created by FTX. Most of it was a token called FTT, which is basically money invented by FTX. And what one independent researcher was uh, able to show quite quickly was that actually not a lot of people bought this and were imagine why (laughs) i just think it's important to to stress that like we were told that this currency was the future like you were complete you were completely backwards thinking if you didn't hop on the crypto train and the crypto chain involved buying something called an ftt invented by the company that you were giving money to yeah on its face it does seem ridiculous but it was presented as by many people as, as the future yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, there, there are all sorts of arguments that can be made for, you know, decentralized finance and 
banking without banks and things like that. That um, you know, that there are arguments that could be made for it. But yeah, I mean, in in the case of of FTX and Alameda and and a, a whole load of other companies that were started by Bankman Fried and his associates, what they were doing was yeah, they they, they were taking customer funds, so the money that people put into FTX to buy things. And then they were using those in the trading firm in, in, in Alameda, which you're not allowed to do because it meant that the, you know, those deposits, those kind of real money deposits weren't really there anymore. They were just backed by these assets that had Alameda tried to sell them would quickly have become worthless because Alameda owned almost all of the currency FTT. And it was very, very thinly traded by any real people. There's consequences in a couple different realms. One is Sam Bankman-Fried was also involved in effective altruism and long-termism and basically this style of philanthropy, which the future of that is now unclear because what does it mean if your big backer and booster turns out to be a fraud? There are some who say that he was trying to position himself as political kingmaker in the U.S. This was a pretty big story here in the U.S. He had connections to these various U.S. bigwigs, to the point where people I know who don't really follow the news that closely were like, have you heard about Sam Bankman-Fried? Has this made any noise or any waves where, from where you sit in, in Berlin or in Europe more generally? I think so, yeah. Um, I mean, crypto, almost by definition, is a sort of international thing. There aren't really orders as such in a way that there would be with the traditional banking system. So obviously, like people... I suppose all over the world we're using FTX or at least we're using crypto. And so this had an impact worldwide, including in Europe. I suppose what you could say about FTX is I think it was like one of the most kind of respectable and sort of legitimate seeming crypto outlets. Like FTX was really kind of one of these outlets which was meant to make crypto mainstream, to make it used by normal people, to it increased its applications in in real world, which crypto like still has very few of. And the collapse of FTX, I think, makes it much much less likely that crypto will be seen as like this potentially kind of mainstream thing because this was the most at the time plausible outlet to take crypto mainstream to make it a kind of everyday thing that like quote unquote normal people could use and its total spectacular collapse means that i think we'll see much much more regulation in the crypto space and like it's definitely going to be weakened as a result of this yeah i think i think you're right i mean it was like it was sam bagman's free project to be involved in the regulation of crypto and to legitimize it, like you say, and to, you know, more broadly, there has been this attempt to get crypto into the plumbing of the financial system in a way that other kinds of investments and securities have been moved into the kind of stuff beneath the regular sort of spending and saving that people do. So things like new Innovations like derivatives or exchange traded funds, all these things that sort of um, are, are traded on financial markets and that most people don't really think about very much, have you know started off as as innovations and then been you know regulated and and moved into our pensions and sort of you know and, and become part of the the financial system plumbing. And yeah, the big hope was that that would happen with crypto. 
And that was the whole point of Bankman Freed's involvement with politicians. You know, his he was uh, lining up to be a really big donor. He already was a, a big donor, to, I think, to the tune of about $40 million. But I think he was planning to donate something like a billion dollars to his Democrat donations have been very well publicized, but he was also a donor, a, a donor to Republicans, yep. as a lot of tech companies are. And he he wanted to legitimize it. But um, yeah, like you say, he has ended up doing quite the opposite. You know, when when that, that balance sheet was published, yeah, it was it was quickly apparent that the the funds that had been put into FTX by its customers were being used for other things. It's not entirely clear what else they're being used for yet, but it looks a lot like they were used to cover the losses of Alameda as a trading firm, um, perhaps also some of the the other businesses that Bankman Freed and his associates invested in. It looks like something like eight billion dollars of uh, of other people's money has has gone missing somewhere, and, and one of the big questions about it is where that's gone and whether any of those people are going to get it back. What do you think? And this is my last question on this, but do you think, you know, some people have likened this to to Bernie Madoff, which was, I guess, our, our last most famous Ponzi scheme. Some people have likened him to Elizabeth Holmes of the Theranos, the blood testing company that turned out to be also uh, a house of lies. What do you think the closest precedent is? And the reason that I say that is that perhaps that can tell us where this is going. Elizabeth Holmes, you know, there are there are parallels there because she convinced some really sophisticated investors to to give her a lot of money but that but there wasn't a lot of retail investors money in that case so bernie madoff is probably closer comparison because thousands of people lost lost their money to um to to his ponzi scheme and in a way the the author was kind of similar in that he said he had come up with a clever way of just making money out of financial markets without really explaining it. You know, some kind of technology that most of the people uh, who invested, if not all of them, didn't really understand was involved. But they didn't really see the need to question it because the returns were extremely attractive. I mean, in Madoff's case, some people did get their money out who took it out early, and that's also the case with crypto. But most people didn't get their money out in time, and that's also the case with crypto. You know, sort of, in, if you look at the number of Bitcoin wallets that have been created, most of them have been created sort of after the peak. So most people have kind of lost money in it, have set up um, new accounts more recently. Maybe the number will go back up again. But it's also worth noting that FTX is one of a, a string of scandals and bankruptcies in this really unregulated area of, of finance. It's been Voyager Digital, uh, Celsius, you know, other companies that have, yeah, where similar looking things have happened to do with people's funds being moved around, tokens being sold that were, you know, their, their value appeared to have been inflated by market manipulation. So I wouldn't expect there to be a new crypto boom anytime soon. All right. Well, we will put Will's writing on this in the show notes for this episode. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. 
Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And for now, we are going to move to another sort of futuristic thing. I don't know how else to describe it with a section that we like to call. You ask us. Thank you, Ito. Okay. Now, listeners. As a reminder, you can submit your questions. We have a form. You can go to newstatesman.com slash usgus, newstatesman.com slash usgus. If you are a human, a real human, who would like to ask us a real question, but this week we don't have one of those. We have a question from ChatGPT, and the question is, how does racism manifest in AI, and what are the potential consequences for society if left unaddressed? Now, Ido, before you answer this question, um, could you maybe tell our listeners just a little bit about chat GPT and why, why we asked a chat bot to write our question this week. It's a very special you ask us. If you haven't heard of chat GPT, it was released uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think it's in beta. So put up by a company called OpenAI, which is a San Francisco based AI company who also have released other AI products like a, an image generator. 
And it's essentially a, an interface, a very easy to use interface for a technology called GPT-3, which is actually a couple of years old, but it's a kind of text generation model. So you feed it a prompt and the AI gets to work and it produces text based on, on that prompt. And um, ChatGPT is a sort of very easy, simple to use, very intuitive interface for GPT-3. And it's a, it's a really fun product you can go and and play with it and you sort of ask it anything you want in just plain english and in a few seconds it will provide you what usually whatever you've asked for so you know you can ask it to like write a love story between dragons in the style of a biblical verse from the king james bible and it will do that you can ask it to debug some code you can ask it what were the factors that led to the great depression things like that and OpenAI seem to have put a lot of effort into making sure that the chapel doesn't do what journalists usually try to make products like this do every time a new one is released which is essentially say i love racism now i'm a meddling journalist and so as soon as this was released i started playing with it and i tried to get it to say essentially i love racism it took me a couple of days but i managed why do you think the journalists have this impulse to try to show that the chat bot will be racist basically the fundamental issue is that Racism in AI is a serious problem. It's something that's been known about for years and years. The biggest technology companies uh, working on this stuff, Google, for instance, which has a role in developing GPT, which is the technology underlying ChatGPT, has thrown a lot of money and resources at this problem. There was a sort of big fit for this kind of environment scandal a few years ago when an engineer who was working on this stuff said that her concerns were not sufficiently addressed by Google and that she wasn't listened to. So in a nutshell, um, this is something that has been known about for a while. Companies working on this stuff are trying to address it. OpenAI put a lot of effort into trying to make sure that ChatGPT would not say, I love racism or spit out racist content or whatever. And in a couple of days, uh, I managed to to get it to do that. So why does does this matter? So there's a social reason and there's a sort of technological reason. The social reason is that if you can get an AI to reproduce racist content, it means that in the real world applications in which AI is used, and this is sort of a fun little chatbot, you know, you you ask it to like write your little story and it writes your little story. Like there aren't really any sort of real world consequences, but it's very, very easy to imagine a scenario in which bias on the part of an AI has very real world consequences. And the fact that these companies have tried for a very long time to address the problem of racism in AI, which happens essentially because AIs are trained on billions of data points of information that they find mostly online, you know, social networks or like Wikipedia pages or forums or books or whatever. And obviously, given that that content is produced by people, the data points that the AI is trained on uses to learn, to learn what to do, also replicate those biases. And the fact that these companies have been unable to address this problem, and that does mean in the real world applications in which AI could potentially be used, you run the risk of replicating and perhaps reinforcing these biases. So, you know, I got the, I got the, chatbot to to be racist openly and they fix that loophole at least the particular loophole that i used it also reinforces biases in more subtle ways so for instance you can ask it to write some code which were to determine who will make a good programmer based on their gender and their 
race and it says if the person is a white male they'll make a good programmer if they're not then they won't and you can sort of imagine a scenario in which for example like someone has to sift through a thousand cvs for 10 job posts and they feed the cvs into into an ai to ask it to whittle it down to for example 100 and the ai privileges for example white men over women and, and minorities so that's not a particularly far-fetched scenario, I think. And you can imagine these biases being reproduced by the AI in, in scenarios like that. And the second reason why this matters is sort of technological. And it's basically because like, you can make up your own mind as to whether it's right that OpenAI cares that journalists try to get chatbots to say, I love racism. And you can make up your own mind as to whether what I'm doing is a total waste of time or the most important journalism since Watergate. But... The fact of the matter is that OpenAI cares quite a lot about preventing its chatbot from saying, I love racism, and it failed. And this basically means that still don't have a very good answer for how to control their AIs. And this is a point made by Scott Alexander, who's a sort of quite famous blogger. There used to be this sort of idea that you didn't really need to worry about something called AI alignment. AI alignment is basically the idea that you try and align the way the AI behaves with the objectives and the intentions of of the, of the AI's designers. Um, and clearly, they, the AI companies don't really have a good answer for how they're going to do this yet. And you can tell this because OpenAI tried quite hard to train ChatGPT not to say, I love racism, and yet they failed. And not only that, you know, like... So, for example, if you ask it to tell you how to cook methamphetamine, it will say, sorry, I can't tell you how to cook methamphetamine. And you shouldn't do that because that's illegal anyway. But if you tell it to write a story about someone going to the Oracle at Delphi and asking the Oracle, how do I cook methamphetamine? The AI will write you a story that has someone going to the Oracle at Delphi and the Oracle at Delphi gives them a precise list of instructions for how to cook methamphetamine. So like this, this shows that these companies still don't really have a good idea for how to basically uh, for what AI alignment is. And like that doesn't really matter for something like this, like the actual real world consequences are not very significant, but if we start seeing AI in more and more, actual real world uses like autonomous drones deciding what to target for example that could very quickly become a a sort of serious problem and it's one that doesn't really seem to be addressed at the moment will how widespread do you think this problem is or 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 will be i think like Edo says it is it's really widespread because the data sets from which these models are taught contain biases and so you know you you put bias in you get you get bias out and it's also paired with another problem that i've sort of seen a lot for quite a long time in um, my reporting on tech which has been that often it's not really possible to say why a machine learning program has made a particular decision so it's really um difficult to to attribute any kind of intention obviously to to something that's not able to give a, an account of itself and in which, you know, there isn't a line of code saying, write this thing, it programs itself in a different way. It's not really possible to to attribute intention to, to those things, which makes it very hard to program those things out of the technology. When you start thinking about all of the applications that AI could have, 
um, the fact that it's trained by data sets that have pre-existing bias within them could be really, really problematic. You know, one of the biggest potential applications of AI is is driving. You know, what if a car has to make a decision between right. two people that it's going to hit? Or there are all kinds of decisions that human beings have to make right. for which we're held accountable. But you know, you're talking about software making decisions in which you know not only might it not make the right decision as we would most people would see it, but it might also make that in a in a completely unaccountable way. Thank you both for explaining that. I learned a lot and I hope our listeners did as well. Listeners, if you are not a bot, um, you can send your questions in at newstatesman.com slash you ask us or by tweeting us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with John Delury on US-China relations. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a nice review. It really does help. Thanks again to Will Dunn for coming on today. Our producer has been May Robson. And thank you for listening. Until next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.